In his latest book, Orlando Figes, one of the world's leading authorities on Russian history and culture, describes how over centuries Russian autocrats have manipulated mythology and history to suit their political and imperial purposes. And he argues that that explains Vladimir Putin's aggressive behavior toward Ukraine and other neighboring nations. His book, The Story of Russia, which covers the thousand years of Russia's history, is published by Metropolitan Books and brings University of London history professor Orlando Figes to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, you write that in order to understand how Russia has come to see itself within the global order, especially in Asia and Europe, we must understand the push and pull between concepts of East and West since the founding of Kiev and Rus. The, the first Russian state around 980. Correct, yes. Um, that is part of my argument. And that shared foundation in Kiev and Rus, shared by today's Russia and Ukraine, is, is really very much at the heart of this war in terms of how Putin, uh, for sure, has tried to uh, justify it and prepare the population over many years now with his argument uh, notoriously rehearsed in his uh, July 2021 uh, um, essay on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, in which he argued simply that Ukraine didn't exist as a state, it never really existed as a state, only in an artificial form given to it by the Soviet Union, and it should really be part of a greater Russia. Um, and, you know, that was um, an argument that one could see coming uh, for some time. I begin the book with the opening of the monument to Grand Prince Vladimir, uh, the Kievan prince who converted to Christianity, therefore bringing Russia into Byzantium in 988. Uh, a ceremony in Moscow in 2016, in which Putin declared, you know, Ukraine, this was really the founding of the modern Russian state. It's a huge of statue of Grand Prince Sorry? Vladimir. It's a huge statue. It, it is huge, indeed, and purposefully a metre taller than the one in Kiev, which is the foundation of the Ukrainian national story. Um, so, you know, that, that ceremony in 2016 already seemed to me then um, as almost, well, if not a declaration of war, then, you know, a statement of intent towards Ukraine, that it had no sort of natural basis for its existence as a state. Well, it's called Kievan Rus, and that's because it's, Kiev is in that, or Kiev as uh, the, the capital of, of Ukraine. Um, the Russians, with the strong sense of history, still have been destroying Kiev? Um, it, well, yes, they have been shelling it. They, they um, uh, marched on it at the beginning of the war, as, as you know, in an attempt to seize power there and ousted the Zelensky government, which Putin, I think, was told was going to collapse like a house of cards. But uh, they were very wrong, weren't they? But... Uh, uh, I don't think we've seen or are likely to see the sort of devastation of the center of Kiev by the Russians, as they've done to so many other cities in Ukraine, because precisely for that reason we've been talking about. They see uh, the, the, the cathedrals um, and monasteries of central Kiev um, as the um, beginnings of their own civilization. So that would completely defeat the purpose of their ideological war. When Putin unveiled the statue, he praised Vladimir as someone who, quote, gathered and defended Russia's lands by founding a strong, unified, and centralized state. Is that true? Or do we know much about what Vladimir actually did? 
Yeah, no, no. I mean, well, we can't really know. He, he's a semi-legendary figure. All that we know about him was written by monks 200 years after he died um, in order largely to justify his, uh, the, the, the dynasty that he'd founded, the Rurikid dynasty. And the and, conversion to Orthodox Christianity. And indeed, um, that, that uh, so it was all sort of the chronicles we have on his life um, uh, is a, put him into a historical context game back literally to the time of the Bible. Um, and so we can't really take any of it at face value. It's all about myth making from the very start and the use of religion in, in Kievan Rus to, to spread the influence of, of um, a state that, because it was part of Byzantium, saw church and state as very closely combined. Um, so it is a civilizational state from the beginning, uh, but it's not um, in it to any degree you know, categorized as as the beginnings of the modern Russian state, as, as Putin did. I mean, it would be a little bit like the Brits saying that Alfred the Great, who was one of our legendary figures from about the same time as the Grand Prince Vladimir, that Alfred the Great, this sort of mythical figure, was the founder of the modern um, British state. I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. Didn't Vladimir have 800 concubines and wives before he chose Christ over Muhammad at the end of the first millennium? Well, that that is the story. Again, legendary, no doubt. Um, uh, but it was part of the chronicle story of how he chose um, orthodoxy as his religion, because he'd gone to um, uh, the, the, the Muslim states and he'd been to the uh, uh, Catholic states and he'd asked them about what their rules were and he didn't like the, the ban on alcohol in the Muslim states and he didn't like the ban on on polygamy in 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 the Catholic state, um, so he chose uh, orthodoxy not because it uh, uh, allowed bigamy, it didn't, but because, as the legend goes, uh, they were won over by the sheer visual beauty of the Saint Sophia um, 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 uh, Basilica in 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 Constantinople. So, um, and the visual aspect of, of religion has always been very central to the Russian identity. Clearly, you can think about icons, for example, carrying the notion of spirituality, uh, a gateway into, into, into the sacred world for, for so many Russians in a culture where there weren't printed books, where there weren't um, uh, enough literate people to spread the sort of literate civilization that we think of in Renaissance Europe already, which didn't really reach Russia until the 18th or 19th centuries. But it, it, this is a story of expansion. The state expanded under the Rurik dynasty from the late 9th to the mid-13th century and wound up including East Slavic, Norse, and Baltic Finnic peoples. So were, were those, they people who were happy to join the state or were they conquered people? They were mostly conquered people. I mean, the problem um, for the tribes of Siberia and North Asia was, you know, they only had at most bows and arrows, which they might use to um, hunt uh, reindeer, etc., for their furs, which was what effectively drove the Russian forces east in search of furs. And they would take the they would take with the power of gunpowder from the 17th century, they uh, would easily take hundreds of, you know, tribes, leaders, women, shamans hostage in order to collect the tribute of fur. And in the wake of the Cossacks, mainly, who did this, 
Uh, then, you know, more organized armies, administrators, churchmen, monasteries moved in to colonize the areas of, of North Asia and Siberia. And thus it spread. But the 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 uh, the, the problem about Russian expansion, which is always uh, sort of divided historians, is whether expansionism was uh, intrinsic in the Russian nature or whether uh, the expansion of Russia was was something that sort of grew because there was there was no way of stopping the invasion of um, Siberian tribes, um, most notably, of course, the, the Mongol armies who invaded Russia and occupied it for 250 years from the middle of the 13th century. So in order to sort of roll back the influence of the steppe and these nomadic tribes who could run in on horses and cause immense devastation, to, to roll back the, their influence, the Russian state expanded east. That, in any case, is the Russian nationalist um, sort of uh, narrative. But I think today... Um, most historians would disagree with that and see Russia uh, as a much more traditional sort of um, territorial empire. Where does the word Rus come from? Well, uh, the word Rus, uh, we don't really know exactly what it means, but it probably is just a Nordic word for rowers. In other words, boatmen who made a living mm. from fishing and trading and marauding. And uh, it was the Rus boatmen from uh, Roslagen, which might be connected to their name on the eastern seaboard of Sweden, who came into Russia through its North Russian river tributaries. And um, supposedly, according to these legends we've been talking about, um, they were, uh, that being Vikings and warriors, they were offered the, um, the, 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 the sort of crown of, of Novgorod and then Kiev on the basis that they would unite the Slavs who otherwise were, were too busy fighting each other um, to make the most of their resources. So th that again is, you know, is the legend of the founding of the dynasty um, in the middle of the ninth century. So, but, you know, we, that's another hundred years back from the founding of the Christian dynasty. And, um, uh, and so we know even less about it. And the, these, these national myths are really just that. They're just stories which the Russians have told about their foundation um, as Effectively, that story being one to justify monarchy, because it was the idea that the Slavs couldn't rule themselves. They they had to have a king, even a foreign king, as in the Viking, Rus, in order to unite and uh, bring order to the people. And and so that idea of the Rus being called in was very much one um, uh, promoted by monarchist historians in the 18th and 19th century. How far it's true? Nobody really knows. How significant is it that the names of a number of, of nations, Belarus and Russia, are derived from Rus, from the Absolutely, the Kievan yeah. I mean, in, in the, in they, the Russian... They, they, they claim Kievan Rus as their cultural ancestor, and so they put it in their name? Yes, that's right. So um, Belarus, uh, 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 Little Rus, as Ukraine was called in the Russian imperial discourse of the 19th century, and Russia, Great Russia, um, um, in, in this discourse, were all one tripartite nation originally. They all traced their origins back to Kiev. Uh, they were all under the dynasty of, of the rule of these Rus rulers and 
um, they effectively were one nation, one people, one civilization that because of the Mongol invasion had been divided and gone to a large degree for a couple of centuries, at least their separate wise. But then, you know, they remained effectively the same. And the, the, the aim of the Russian Empire from the 17th century uh, on was to reunite these three lands into one um, entity, which for Putin still today, you know, justifies his, his imperial war. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Orlando Figes, F-I-G-E-S. His latest book, The Story of Russia, is published by Metropolitan Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Wasn't Kievan Rus quite huge in the mid-11th century, stretching from the White Sea in the north to the Black Sea in the south, and from the headquarters of the Vistula in the west to the Taman Peninsula in the east? Uh, was that a matter of uniting the East Slavic tribes? Um, it, it was big, but it was a fairly loose confederation of, of principalities. So it was, a, it was an unusual monarchical formation, not like much else in Europe at that time, in that um, the head of the family who, who became the Grand Prince of Kiev um, uh, was the eldest brother and the succession went to the next brother. So it, um, that uh, fraternal... Um, sort of confederation, if you like, of principalities, made it quite a decentralized entity. And that was precisely what made it so vulnerable to the attack of nomadic uh, uh, tribes and horsemen from the steppe. That they, Especially they didn't the, have Gan a, the Mongols. They, got, they were got by the Mongols because the Mongols could divide and rule and under their um, occupation of, of, of Rus, the Mongols certainly bought off the, the Prince of Muscovy, um, who got favourable treatment in order to collect taxes for the Mongols. So um, divide and rule of the principalities worked against Kievan Rus, um, but also just the, the question of mustering an army was, was, was problematic because it wasn't a centralised state in the way that other armies could mobilise um, in the early modern period. So they didn't have a strong central military control? No, what happened is that when they needed soldiers uh, for, for a campaign, they would collect them through a, through a, a taxation system hmm. of conscription via each of the princes and then their, their, their bondsmen. Uh, but, and it was related to the amount of land that, that people held in property. Um, and therefore were obliged to pay this conscription on it to put into uniform so many soldiers for uh, uh, so much land they had. But it, there wasn't a standing army other than, uh, you know, the court and princely armies to uh, defend uh, the immediate area because um, they, 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 they were basically a trading country, not, um, out, not, not raiders. Um, they were de uh, defending their, their towns, which are nearly all walled, um, either by stone um, or more commonly by wood. And, um, and, and so as long as they could defend their towns and collect their taxes effectively, they didn't feel they needed a standing army. That came later in Russia with the, 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 uh, rise of Muscovy uh, under Ivan the Fourth or Ivan the Terrible, as, as, as we call him, as it did in much of Europe in the 16th century, that you had, you know, much more centralised bureaucracies, tax collecting systems in order to raise bigger armies. 
But this is really an international story. The Empress Catherine was a German, and uh, she may have founded Odessa to capture the world's grain trade in 1794. And just years before that, the Black Sea coast had been part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Indeed. Indeed. I mean, these boundaries, you know, have shifted over time so much. Um, you know, what we think of now of, uh, as Ukraine, I mean, there's, very, there's probably in about a third of it that has sort of always been what uh, the Ukrainian nationalists today might call Ukraine. In other words, a direct uh, line going back to, to, to the Middle Ages. Um, most of Ukraine, as it is formed now, you know, was part of, well, some of it in the northeast was part of Hungary, even Slovakia, some of it in the south, um, um, you know, was 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 part of the of the Crimean Khanate, which was part one of the last remaining uh, uh, sort of um, military warrior warlord kingdoms of of the Mongol Khan, which you know remained a powerful state in in Europe in the Black Sea area until the end of the 18th century, when, as you say, Catherine the Great annexed Crimea and the Khanate came to an end. But it, you know, it was a powerful state that could raid much of the southern steppe land. Uh, the wild lands, as they were called, which today were very much part are very much part of of central Ukraine. So, um, you know, the boundaries have shifted. Um, the uh, dynasty uh, in in power in Russia has been connected, as you say, to most of the courts of of Europe, uh, the German courts, the uh, Austrian courts, um, the British monarchy. Um, and uh, until 1917, played um, an integral part of of the of the European family of nations united by these royal dynasties. So um, today, in many ways, is you know the, what we've seen in terms of the isolation of Russia uh, during the Soviet Union and then increasingly under Putin. You know that is that is the 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 exception to what otherwise, as you say, is a story of of tremendous international influence and cross-fertilizations because Russia is a big open territory with no real boundaries. So it's always been invaded, had uh, whole peoples move across it. Um, and 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 it's for that reason an, a, a, an entity which is rather difficult to hold together. And throughout most of its history, wasn't it in Moscow's interest to increase its territorial boundaries and keep its neighbors weak, something that it's a strategy that it has returned to in recent years? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's absolutely part of this pattern we were talking about before in terms of Russia's eastward expansion. And it certainly became um, intrinsic to uh, Russia's foreign policy, especially towards its near abroad neighbors. In the 19th century, for example, it, it you know it kept the Ottoman Empire weak and divided. It would even send its army uh, through uh, what we now think of as Romania towards Constantinople in order to get its way um, over uh, the Turkish government, particularly over the control of the Black Sea and the Straits into the Mediterranean, or for the defence of the Orthodox in the Ottoman Empire, which was the cause of the Crimean War of the middle of the 19th century. So, you know, Russia's always sort of uh, pursued, since it's been an empire, I think it's always, as far as it could, pursued this policy of keeping its neighbours weak and divided. 
as a sort of buffer zone to protect it from what it sees as the more powerful neighbors of the West. And that's very much determined its policies towards Ukraine. Um, and um, that that's very much also part of, of Putin's ideology, that unless Ukraine is kept under Russian control or strong influence, it will be used against Russia by the West. That was the other sort of big element of his essay I mentioned earlier um, that was published by the Kremlin in July 2021, and which is, I think, rightly seen by many people as the declaration of this war, that, that Ukraine can't be let slip out of Russia's influence, out of its sphere of influence, because then it will just become an anti-Russia used by the West. But the, the history of Russia is one of uh, growing strength and then weakness. Didn't the state begin to decline in the late 11th century, gradually become various rival regional powers throughout the 12th century? So, Oh, going back all the way to Kievan Rus now, yes, for yeah. sure. I mean, uh, to hold, and I think what that example Partly because showed. of the decline of the, the Byzantine Empire? I think no. I think it's just a question of. I mean, the big problem about Russia and holding any state together, whether it's in the 13th century or the 19th century, is 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 um, the size. It's the size of the country, um, and it's the fact that you don't have um, a large class of literate. Um, honest, conscientious people to be civil servants, um, to be servitors, uh, administrators. So um, the 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 uh, the state either has to sort of wield um, coercive power, waving a stick at its administrators to try and get anything done or enforced, um, but on the other hand, um, by default, it has to allow a great deal of decentralisation because. Um, collecting taxes at the local level. They just don't have the people to do it themselves. They relied for centuries upon the, the peasants in the villages to collect taxes themselves um, and enforce basic rule and order on their own people um, through a, a commune. So, um, And that was an ancient institution. So there's always been this sort of uh, paradoxical tussle in Russia in terms of power between a strong centralizing state, but at the same time, very strong um, decentralizing tendencies that, that have eroded state power. And this is the cycle Russia's gone through between very autocratic rule and revolution. And it finally fell to the Mongol invasion in the mid-13th century. It, it did, yes, um, it did. Um, precisely for some of those um, issues we've talked about. So... Mm. Um, Russia but, can but, be, but the Rurik dynasty continued to rule until the death of Fyodor I of Russia in 1598. So, how did that work? Well, the, uh, when the the uh, when the Ivan the Third um, and then Ivan the Fourth, um, which one was the terrible one? Ivan the Fourth was the terrible one, who's, who crushed a lot of the old nobility. Uh, and and fought expansion wars to defeat the, the the last remnants of the Mongol Khanates in the Volga region, but um, they tried to reclaim. I mean, it was a sort of bogus claim, but they reclaimed um, a um, a sort of lineage going back to that Byzantine link of Kievan Rus in order to legitimize themselves. Yet another example, if you like, of of you know. Power actually depending on mythologies, on on, on bogus uh, legends of of genealogy, of of legitimacy uh, to to justify 
um, you know, the, 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 the monarchical tradition that they want to carry on. You explore the growth of the patrimonial autocracy and examine how much of the mechanics of the country's autocracy, bureaucracy, military structure, oligarchy, and corruption were inherited from those three centuries of Mongol rule. Indeed. Go on. Sorry. So, well, I'm, I'm just curious. So are we talking about a Russian situation or a Mongol situation or, oh. are they, or is that all the same thing? Well, it, they become enmeshed. Obviously, if you have um, a power system of collecting tribute um, and owing um, slavish devotion to the Khan for 250 years, that will leave a large impact on, on, on a society. And many of those methods of the Khanate were, in fact, adopted by the Tsars that followed. Um, and um, the patrimonial principle, I think, is is one of these uh, elements. It was there in Kievan Rus before the Mongols, but it was undoubtedly strengthened by the Mongol power system. And at its heart was this idea that that power is uh, power is the, the the holding of land and its people. It's the owning of land and its people. I mean, to put it as very bluntly, um, its most logical expression is in that. Uh, first national census in Russia in 1897, when the last Tsar Nicholas II described himself under occupation as the owner of Russia. Um, and that is literally the heart of the patrimonial system, that power is ownership. If you think about the words in the European languages for power, they're all about the ability to do something, autonomous action, pouvoir in French, potenza in Italian, macht in German. They're, they're all about activity. But in Russia, the word for power is vlast, which comes from the word volost. And volost is the word for a fiefdom. It's a word for the land with its people that you own. So and didn't everything belong to the state from Peter the Great to Catherine the Great to Alexander II all the way uh, to the, the Bolsheviks and, and, and Stalin? Well, there is a concept of the state. Um, there is a concept of the state, but um, actual uh, full ownership of property as given to landowners um, in exchange for... Uh, service didn't exist in the Western sense. Um, so uh, it happened as late as the 19th century. The, the Decembrists, who were uh, constitutional revolutionaries, uh, arrested and exiled to Siberia by the Tsar Nicholas I, well, in doing that, they were stripped of their property. In other words, uh, the Tsar could take back mm. the property that his ancestors had given to this family in exchange for service and noble status. And um, so effectively, no one owned, owned anything as long as there was a Tsar. I mean, and in, in a sense, that system has continued to this day. I mean, the oligarchs that we talk about under Putin's Russia, I mean, if they displease Putin, they can be stripped of all their property if, if they still are in any way connected to, to, to Russia. So, um, the, so um, you know, if, if Putin wants... People talk about Putin's value, how much money does he own through his corrupt system. It doesn't work like that in, in Russia under Putin, which remains a patrimonial system, because if he wants $100 million to do something, he just goes to one of the oligarchs and says, come on, pay up. 
um, and, and the oligarch does. So, you know, this is the patrimonial system that has has characterized so much of the Russian state and nature of power in Russia yeah, for hundreds right, of years. Yeah, quote, this imbalance between a dominating state and a weak society has shaped the course of Russian history. Indeed it has. It has. The, the state has always been incredibly powerful, at no point more powerful vis-a-vis -vis society than it is arguably now. Um, and... Um, and 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 civil society has always been so weak because of the problems of organizing in such a big country, because of the problems of censorship, the police regime, um, the 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 difficulty of collecting taxes for local government, the weakness of charities, the weakness of an aristocracy holding land and patronizing local institutions or giving money to a church or foundations that would create uh, a civil society. None of that really was uh, uh, of any great significance in Russia until arguably, you know, only then uh, weekly at the end of the 19th century. So um, and that that weakness of civil society is really the problem of Russia. It's not that the Putin regime is all powerful. It's that civil society is so weak. And likewise, you know, in, in for much of the Tsarist period, the, the problem wasn't that it was an all-powerful police state. It wasn't. In a huge country, the number of police at the disposal of the state was tiny, much less than, than it was in most of Europe in the 19th century. But it was the fact that, that actually it was very difficult to organise against the state because society was so weakly developed. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, the one we're discussing, The Story of Russia. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return to Orlando Fudges, who lives in England. He doesn't Hello. Know. You don't? I do. Yes, yeah. hello. I mean, uh, I'm actually in Italy. England doesn't have the same issues that we do. Uh, they, the, the government charges everybody uh, a, a fee. To, to pay for the BBC, whether they listen or not. We ask our listeners to support yeah, us. Indeed. Um, the book, by the way, The Story of Russia, is from Metropolitan uh, Books. Um, now, doesn't Putin repudiate any hint of westernizing influences in Russian history, kind of like the way Peter the Great did? 
Um, well, Putin, uh, like Peter, uh, you know, began actually wanting further Russian integration into Europe. And like Peter, he, he's a, from Petersburg, <laughs> the city Peter built, and its, uh, it's face moves west. Um, uh, it's the most Europeanized of the Russian cities in terms of its history, for sure. Um, but, I mean, since the growing nationalism and authoritarianism of Putin's regime has uh, asserted itself, which, um, you know, certainly since the beginning of his third presidency in 2012 has become very marked, uh, Russia has definitely turned against uh, Europe and uh, is now swiveling towards Eurasia and will probably end up being a vassal state of China. Um, uh, by the time this war has finished. So, um, it, you know, it, Russia has moved between facing West or facing East, depending largely on Western policy towards it, um, because I think European integration will be uh, Russia's first choice of, of orientation, um, uh, because that's where the money has, has always been, if you like, the new technologies. And so on, uh, but uh, it, it it can play both ways, and um, uh, it can recoil from the West as as Russia has done under Putin in the last ten years. It can recoil from the West if it feels that um, it's slighted or disrespected, or um, that the rules of uh, uh, NATO in this case for Putin um, don't suit Russia's interests or are not taking Russia's interests into account sufficiently. Um, so, um, you know, uh, history underlines a lot of that and uh, the history that he spouts, which is very anti-Westernist in its orientation, um, Slavophile we would call it, but in a very militant way, that, you know, Russia effectively for Putin neither need compare itself with the West, but it doesn't need in his view, even to try and live up to Western standards because they are hostile to the West in his view. So this is the view that's that's developed and um, um, it, it's, it's had a certain resonance, I believe, in the Russian population, the message he's put across uh, because of the history they've been taught, which, you know, effectively is this imperial vision we were talking about and uh, that, that that's what their history books have said for the last two or three hundred years. But it, it also has certain resonance because I think a lot of Russians uh, feel a good deal of personal resentment towards the sort of loss of everything they saw as the source of their security in 1991. I mean, the experience of capitalism and democracy for most of Russians in the 1990 was very negative. And um, and so th this anti-Western rhetoric of Putin has a certain degree of traction. Well, how did all of this play out during the, the course of the, the communist history of Russia, Lenin and then Stalin and then their six successors? Uh, yeah, I mean, did, it's, did, didn't um, it change with each leader to some degree? To some degree. I mean, the overall... The overall um, politics was was set by Leninist Marxist ideology, and in in that um, world, the West and the, the capitalist system generally 
were 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 hostile to the Soviet Union, um, and um, although you know under detente and so on, a, a coexistence could develop. The two systems in that Marxist worldview were were, were fundamentally until Gorbachev came along, always going to be in conflict. Um, but uh, the, the big change in terms of the, this sort of philosophy of history and a view about the West occurred under Stalin. I mean, Lenin, Lenin was basically an internationalist. I mean, hopes of a world revolution faded before he died in 1924. But, but still, um, you know, he, he didn't believe in, in, in the Soviet Union becoming an empire. Um, he might have been naive about the uh, willingness of the non-Russian republics to remain with the Russian Federation and the Soviet Union, but he didn't actually want to enforce um, centralized imperial control from Moscow. Um, and and he was generally an internationalist in outlook, but the uh, Stalin regime was very different. It put great Russian nationalism first. It It adopted much of the sort of centralizing imperial policy that um, the Tsars had had, it indeed rehabilitated um, many of the more imperial-minded uh, Tsars and, um, you know, made a cult of people like Peter the Great because of his expansion of Russia's boundaries. And in the last years of his life, certainly in the 1940s and early 1950s, Stalin effectively talked about the Soviet Union or Russia as the same thing. He was he was effectively a, um, a great Russian nationalist um, who, who, who saw the Soviet Union as a unitary state. And that effectively is the sort of mindset that Putin has taken up, um, that, that Russia is the you know, inheritor state of the Soviet Union and therefore has this claim, this historic claim in his view, um, to, to, to take back under its aegis um, parts of the Soviet Union that Russia formerly so, had. So would you um, say that the invasion is, of Ukraine is a result of Russia struggling to accept what happened with the collapse of the Soviet Union? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it comes from this revanchist sense of an injustice was done to Russia, especially by the Ukrainians when they pulled out of the uh, talks for the reconstruction of the Soviet Union under Gorbachev in 1991. It was at that point when when the Soviet Union collapsed, when Kravchuk, the, the Ukrainian president, uh, left the Soviet Union with, with, with Yeltsin and the Russian Federation. That pulled the plug on the whole thing. And I think for people like Putin at that time, who are, you know, all the men now in charge of, in the Putin regime, the Siloviki, the strong men, as we talk of them, they were all KGB or military middlemen, you know, middle ranking officers in 1989, 1991. And they and they saw it as the collapse of an empire. And they 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 thought that Gorbachev was was the arch criminal for allowing this collapse to take place. And um and and so there's a, a good deal of of revenge uh, of those of revenge going on uh for what what they see as the catastrophe in 1991 indeed my guest on today's Leonard Lopez at large is Orlando Figes F I G E S his latest book the story of Russia from Metropolitan Books this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at wbai.org although communism was an atheistic ideology, wasn't it? Has the church joined the debate in recent years? Oh, yes, very much so. In fact, I would go to so far as to say that the patriarch Kirill in particular is one of the main ideological driving forces he, he of this war. He gave a speech on the Day of Forgiveness. 
saying that he the did. war in Ukraine is a crusade for human salvation. Indeed, shameful stuff, shameful. And, you know, you see priests blessing tanks uh, with holy water and all the rest of it. And the patriarch in his weekly you know, sermon is, is constantly harping on about this as a holy war, a just war for, uh, you know, a, a Christian cause and all the rest of it. And, and um, it, it, you know, the church was the first of the big institutions to come up with the idea of the of the Ruski Mir, the Russian world, which is an idea that Putin picked up. And um, it's the idea running through that essay we've been talking about, the July 2021, which which is, in a sense, the historical justification for the war in Putin's world. It's called On the and Historical the idea of, Unity of Russians and Ukrainians. Indeed, that essay. And at the heart of that is this notion of, of the Russian world, which comes from the church, which began to use that idea around 2010 or so, because it wanted to uh, reclaim influence over the diasporic churches. In other words, the Russian Orthodox Church abroad in Paris, London and so on. And so it talked about the Russian world in that sense. And Putin picked up that notion to argue more broadly about a civilization called the Russian world, which united beyond the borders of Russia itself, the, the Russian speakers of Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan, wherever. And um, uh, and it was on that basis that he called the, the collapse of the Soviet Union in the speech of 2005 the great catastrophe of, of the 20th century, because he said in the following sentence, what that did was to leave uh, for a tragedy for the Russia, that Russian Federation, because tens of millions of our citizens, he called them, in other words, Russian speakers, were left outside the boundaries of Russia in Ukraine, Belarus, and so on. Well, I mean, that's complete nonsense. I mean, the, the Russian speakers of Ukraine are Ukrainians. They're citizens of Ukraine. They just happen, happen to have Russian as their first language. It doesn't make them uh, our citizens, to quote We speak Putin. English in this no. country. Sorry? We speak English in the United States, most of us. Yeah, but it doesn't give us a claim to, yeah, it to mean that Britain to, to conquer can, America, does it, us. from Britain? Yes. So, um, you know, this is an absurd argument. I mean, which, you know, often uh, the, the ideologists and the Kremlin and people who listen to them lose sight of, that none of this historical argumentation has any relevance whatsoever to this war because Ukraine has been an independent state um, internationally recognized by Moscow itself since 1991. But uh, in that essay, didn't Putin argue that the idea of Ukraine is a Trojan horse, an anti-Russian project since the 17th century, and that the present state is uh, on historically Russian lands? Indeed, both those arguments were there. Um, on Russian lands, namely the Donbass and what used to be called before 1917 New Russia, in so, other words, the southern literal coastline of of ukraine uh so everything from odessa to mariupol that was conquered by catherine the great and she named it new russia which is how it was known until 2017 so from 1991 a group of russian nationalists called themselves the new russia movement and and claimed uh, you know uh, that, that russia should be given back these territories including crimea which, of course, as you know, was given by Khrushchev to Ukraine, the Ukrainian Republic, as late as 1954. So, so there was that argument. And they taken back by Putin some years back. I'm sorry? I didn't but catch that? But then Crimea was taken back 
it was taken back, annexed by 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 Putin on the sham referendum after its military occupation by Russian forces and in twenty fourteen. He got away with it, and um, and that and that and that was the big mistake I think made by the West that it, it that it it encouraged him to think he could go further. Um, and um, and it, it it will make uh, the reclamation of Crimea that much harder because so much investment has gone into Ukraine, uh, in, into Crimea, that the, the Russians will not give it up easily. Um, and and um, they 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 feel that eight years has gone by, and so with every passing year of occupation, the case for uh, giving it back to Ukraine. Um, it weakens. And I, I think it would be very difficult to find any politician, you know, Putinist or not, who would at this stage have any chance of being elected if if one could wave a magic wand and create free elections in Russia. There wouldn't be one elected politician, I believe, in Russia who would uh, dare give back Crimea because of the backlash he, he would face from the Russians who see it now as Russian. So, you know, that that weakness of the West in not taking the measures necessary to deter Russia and, and kick it out of Crimea in 2014 are, are going to cost uh, Ukraine dearly, I'm afraid. Haven't Russian soldiers been used to hold back gay pride parades? Um, Russian soldiers um, may have been used in that uh, capacity for sure. Um, but they'd be not from the regular army, probably. They'd be from, they'd be GPU force. They'd be FSB or um, security forces of one form or another um, who would have done that. So it's not like the, the Putin regime has used the army, but certainly he's used security forces um, on on the pretext that um, LGBT demonstrations or whatever could, could, cause, um, could cause a threat. Yeah, it's a very repressive regime. Let's have no illusions about it. And any form of of demonstration um, these days, and certainly LGBT demonstrations uh, for the last ten years or so, that there've been these homopho homophobic laws passed in in Putin's Russia. Um, you know, any demonstration of that sort is going to get severely, violently repressed. So, have the the Russians become victims of their own myths? Huh. To some extent, it, I would argue that is the case. Yeah, I mean, you know, the sort of history they've been taught, um, you know, which Putin has used for that pamphlet we were talking about to build this imperial vision of the greater Russia. You know, that that was basic historiography. That was the basic view of Russian history written about and taught in schools in 19th century Russia. Now, um, there was some change under the Soviet Union, but increasingly under Stalin, as we discussed, that imperial view crept back in. And then in the 1990s, after the collapse of the Soviet system, there was some liberalization in the way history was taught. I was involved in it as a foreign historian myself in trying to train Russian uh, historians, university teachers to 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 you know, think about their history in different ways using Western concepts. But that uh, period, you know, was only about 10 years before the uh, state began to reassert its control over the teaching of history from the early 2000s. It was one of the first things that Putin did. And, and with that reassertion of state control over the historical narrative, 
Um, these myths um, came back in a way that Putin's been able to use for, for this aggressive war. And it's very difficult to counteract those views of Russian history because they're so embedded. Well, why do, have some of these myths existed? For example, Ivan the Terrible, when they exhumed his remains, they realized that he was physically incapable of doing some of the things that he was uh, claimed to have done. Why would they have even wanted a man called Ivan the Terrible as a leader? <laughs> well, at the time, he wasn't, I mean, he was known as Ivan Grozny later on in folklore, mainly. And in that version, Grozny meant not necessarily the terrible, as we might think of that word. It meant um, the awesome. It meant someone who had, you know, real power and was awe-inspiring because of his ability to sort of thump his uh, fist on the desk and get things done. That was the sort of image. And it was, in folklore, it seen as quite a positive thing because, as far as the peasants were concerned, he was on their side. He was using his force to suppress their enemies, the bureaucrats or the noblemen who taxed them too heavily. Um, so... Uh, uh, but these myths, as you say, run right through Russian history. I, and... You know, I think the answer to that is, is I mean, when I started on this book, The Story of Russia, I was thinking always about running the, the structure of the book through through, through the mythologies of, of the past that the Russians have used to understand themselves in their past and indeed used to direct future policies. Um, and, and, and the great historian of Russian mythology, uh, Mikhail Chernyavsky, said that he thought that the reason why there were so many myths in Russian history was that the place was so damn difficult to live in. It was such an inhospitable place. Because of the um, weather? It was, such, it was so hellish in so many ways that people needed to believe in something transcendental. They needed to believe in salvation. So they needed to believe that Christ was going to come not just to the earth, but he was going to come to Russia. And that the Tsar in defending this holy Russia was therefore sacred in himself. And 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 that, that millenarian uh, yearning, that yearning for utopia on earth is, I think, the sort of unifying thread that goes right through Russian and Soviet history. The belief in the sacred Tsar transfers into the belief in the sacred revolutionary leader, the, in the in 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 the goodness of Sta of Stalin or the goodness of Putin. It's the cult of the leader well, is the leader is there is and it's there. And it... Well, Putin has now been declared a criminal uh, <laughs> by an international court. Uh, does that enhance his image in the country? And we only have a minute or so. Um, I, I don't think it does his image any harm as long as his propaganda works on the basis that the West is against us, the world is against us, and therefore we must become a fortress and defend ourselves through the leadership of a strong man like Putin. And that, again, is one of the great central mythologies of Russian history. Think of Alexander Nevsky defending Russia against the Teutonic Knights, as we remember from Eisenstein's famous film of Alexander Nevsky in 1938. So in other words, this is the old Russian story, and it all unfortunately plays into Putin's hands. And I thank you so much for being on our show. Orlando Fajas is the author of many books on Russian history. Uh, they've been translated to more than 30 languages. He's won the Wolfson History Prize, among others, other awards. And he's a professor of history at Birkbeck University of London.
The book Story of Russia is published by Metropolitan Books. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to our executive producer, Kazai Glow, and to Reggie Johnson, our audio engineer, for all of the invaluable work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you. We've been going through a, a rough uh, economic time. Most public broadcasting has been having a problem, but uh, BAI and Pacifica have really been suffering. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212. 209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London paid at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Story of Russia by Orlando Fudges. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, online, give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20, $25, however much you feel comfortable with a month for as long as you decide to keep it going and allows us to plan for the future. And we will say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI is the only station in the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored. Um, we keep us alive and thriving with your tax deductible support, please. We are preempted tomorrow. But I hope you can join us again on Monday when uh, I'll be talking about housing in, the, in this area with Altagracio Pierre Outerbridge. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.